it's the intersection of the George Floyd protests at the same time as people not having money, at the same time as people being thrown in to go to work when other people don't. It's this perfect storm for violence. Nearly three years after the start of the pandemic, the tumultuous events of 2020 continue to have an effect on crime in America. While the murder rate has dropped this year, other violent crime has not. I'm Doug Sovereign, and on this episode of The Homestretch, our new political podcast from Odyssey, we talk crime as seen through the lens of Chicago. That city has been used as a poster child for violence in recent political campaigns, including that of Illinois Republican gubernatorial candidate Darren Bailey. How many people need to be shot before Lori Lightfoot, J.B. Pritzker, and Kim Fox do something? It's not a Chicago thing. This happened across the country. This happened in large cities across the world. It's not localized. It's not a Chicago conversation. So there's a national narrative, at least regarding major cities, that crime is terrible and that it's on the rise in 2022. Is that fair or is it a flawed perception? And are there misconceptions about crime in Chicago right now? Yes, there's been a crime surge in Chicago. There's been a crime surge across the country. Caitlin Devaney is a criminology professor at Northwestern University outside Chicago. We can look at it in terms of right now, we can look at numbers, but then we have to talk about the fact we're coming out of COVID. We have to talk about the fact that people are frustrated. There's inflation. People have been locked down for two years. What communities are feeling that the most? Who's feeling that the most? Then where are we seeing this crime? It is an issue in Chicago, but at the same time, violence rates, crime rates have gone up across the country post-COVID. So my answer is twofold. Yes, it's gone up. But two, when we look at crime, we look at violence in a neighborhood. How do we understand that? That's what I think is really important when we're having these conversations, because it is a political tool. Through mid-October, the murder rate in the U.S. was down more than 5 percent from a year ago, according to the FBI. But the rate of other crimes classified as violent still hasn't come down to pre-pandemic levels. We hear so much about retail crime, youth crime a lot of economic crime, but then there's also a surge in violence, you know, gun violence. What are the most common crimes we're seeing? Is it more economic driven and, you know, I'm going to go rip off a Walgreens or is it a shooting in the neighborhood or all of the above? It's all the above. A lot of it are these economic crimes. I mean, obviously during COVID, we saw a lot of domestic crimes. There are the carjackings. It's the smash and grabs. Those are up. I mean, carjackings are up something. I think the last number I saw is up 350%. But when I'm having conversations in these communities, you're seeing the context of this. So you take a number and then you're saying, yes, this increases 350%. That's factual. It's a quantified number. But then you get into these communities and you say, why? What is going on? You have the dismantling of larger gang structures. We now are seeing clicks on the street with a lack of these structures with control. A lack of structure can lead to uncertainty. In August, Lee Richardson, the founder of the Brain Performance Center in Dallas, told Odyssey station KRLD that the pandemic has affected us more than we may want to admit. Well, I think fear is what's going on. And I think that we've got this basic uncertainty. I mean, what we went through with the pandemic, you know, we tried to shove that aside. Oh, it's over. I'm done with it. But the fact of that is that has touched us all and left us in a very different position. There's paranoia. I mean, can you think back a couple years ago, when people were fighting over toilet paper, that's about as basic as it gets.
It is true that in a lot of the major cities, most of the violent crime is confined to particular neighborhoods. Why do you think it's so hard for people outside those neighborhoods to understand that there's a cause and effect here, that it's not just a matter of all these people are bad and this is why they're doing this, but something has happened to push them to that point where they commit these crimes. And you have to address that, whether it's the quality of the schools, whether it's the availability of good paying jobs, whatever it is. Why is that such a hard thing, do you think, for people to grasp? Because it doesn't fit the larger narrative. And the larger narrative is protecting this large city power structure and money, which is the downtown, the loop area. If this is something to be protected, and the language is, to me, it all goes back to this like racial neoliberalism. People are treated in a way that protects business interests, and race is ingrained in that naturally. That language of this community is crime-ridden needs to be policed and separated. It's a narrative that has served the city's elites forever. It justifies certain policies, certain levels of abandonment of communities. We've seen it in neighborhoods where you come in and it's abandonment followed by high-level growth of buildings. So I think at a city level, it's the narrative that you're talking about. It works. It works. It allows the people who we want to be in power to maintain power. And it allows them the policies that keep certain neighborhoods where they're supposed to be the way that they are. I think whether we realize it or not, there's this great fear that comes from equity. It's everybody having the same voices politically. And what would that look like? What would it look like if your interest isn't their interest? There's a fear. It's a fear that's been stroked forever, forever. If we start to treat crime as a result of larger structural issues, who loses power? And then who's the one that gets to justify the treatment of the communities in the way that it does? They're typically pretty aligned. Devaney touches on the idea of narratives, a concept we've heard from others on this show, too. Guests like economist Chris Thornburg, who told us that is how each party structures its messaging on the economy. There's not one shred of evidence. Not one bit of data, not one historical metaphor that would possibly lead you to the conclusion that the pandemic was going to create a depression. But again, don't let reality involve itself in good political narratives. An activist, Christine Bolaño, says it influences how Democrats and Republicans speak to different groups of voters. For example, Latinos in South Texas, a lot of them work at oil rigs. They work in those type of businesses that the climate change narrative can sound threatening to their very livelihoods. Last month, Illinois Democratic Governor J.B. Pritzker blasted an ad put out by a conservative group that supports his opponent, Darren Bailey, whom we heard from earlier in this episode. Pritzker had harsh words for an ad by the so-called people who play by the rules pack showing a white woman assaulted by apparently black men. He says that's the message they want to see in the suburbs. I'm saying that the intent of the people who put it out, look at all the things that they're involved in, clearly has a racial tinge to it. To me, I looked at COVID, and it's going to sound bad because there's nothing beautiful about COVID, but in terms of controlling for interaction theories and to say the world is shut down, what happens to violence? And then you see it surge. To me, that speaks to micro level feelings and then community level feelings that then lead to increased violence because it's not the interaction anymore. It's not the 
warm summer day, you're interacting more and violence is going to happen. It's we controlled for that. And yet we saw surges across the country. So that speaks to violence as a result of these type of feelings that are tied to the economy, that are tied to racial issues. We learned a lot in those two years in terms of urban sociology, in terms of violence studies, community studies, that a lot of what the political rhetoric is saying is frankly not true. Yeah, and the political rhetoric really has taken a turn, and it differs depending on who's speaking, of course. But, you know, we've had this debate over progressive prosecution with new DAs. You mentioned, you know, mayors and governors either having success or coming under fire. And in places like, you know, San Francisco, there's a backlash now. Democrat Chase Boudin was elected district attorney in San Francisco in 2019 as a progressive who would reform the criminal justice system. He was under fire from the start and recalled from office in an election in June after a little more than two years as DA. Is the jury still out on whether that more progressive policy approach is working or not? Yeah, it's still out. It's still out. With any type of revolution at any type of level, with any type of extreme progress, you're going to have backlash. It's just, it's just immediate. I also think what's important about structural change is you're not going to see the change for a while, right? And the people who are coming at Kim Fox, no matter what side of the equation you fall on with Kim Fox, you're not going to see these results for a while. Kim Fox is the state's attorney in Cook County, home to Chicago. In Illinois, the state attorney is the equivalent of a district attorney. Then you're able to stroke this fear, which is what federal political rhetoric is right now. Local political rhetoric is really stroking this fear of like, who owns city politics? This language of like, they're coming for you. Everything you know is about to change. But yeah, jury's still out. We don't know yet. And these are the type of changes that take a long time. It's interesting because we're seeing from some Democrats the kind of rhetoric, you know, tough on crime talk we generally associate with Republicans. In your research, what are the differences in the ways each of those major parties is tackling this? And do you have a sense as to which approach is more likely to resonate with voters right now and which is more likely to work? Those are two separate questions, right? Because in Chicago, I think the numbers are less than 35% of people are registered and less than 35% vote. And the communities I work with, I don't know many people who are really active in thinking that the vote is something that is going to make the changes that they would like to see. The reason that rhetoric is so important is it's speaking to the people who are probably more likely to come up and vote, right? And that's tough. It's a completely different question in terms of what works. Is there reason to hope as we come out of the pandemic, which does seem to be easing generally, that some of this will ease as well and the numbers will start to come down just because that piece of the pressure, at least, is being removed from the equation? I think, yes. We are now seeing across the country people now changing their perception on a lot of these issues. You're seeing more progressive mayors. You're seeing more progressive governors. You're seeing states and city trying these test pilot programs that are saying like, hey, let's address this differently. And I think we're going to start to see the results of that. You would like to think in this like optimistic thinking that politics are reflective of the local body, but we know that that's not true. So the rhetoric is now very much grounded in white supremacy at every level. It's this, look what's happening to our country and who is our, you know, like these progressives are coming and they're making these changes and you're losing your city, you know, when politics are about power. 
And I think when we're starting to see a shift in the way we're viewing city dynamics, hopefully in a progressive way, you're going to have resistance in terms of people saying like, no, this is my city. And a lot of that language is really around crime. It's crime. These people are causing a problem to our city. And that's frankly why I went into criminology is I think the way we understand crime and talk about crime is the most reflective social entity of race. So given that, it sounds like the more conservative voters are the ones more likely to cite crime as a key issue and to go to the polls because of crime. And since a lot of people affected by crime aren't even voting, how big a difference do you think this issue is going to make in this November's elections, as opposed to the economy or abortion with the people who are actually going to go to the polls? I think it's huge. Specifically in Chicago, it's a huge issue. At the federal level, I don't think we're seeing it as much outside of the push for like these defund the police movements and these different cities are taking approaches to that. But definitely in the Chicago level, I do think it's getting people to the polls. I mean, I wish I could see a number on it. I wonder who it affects, what demographic it affects. Well, as Tip O'Neill famously said, all politics is local, right? What should we be talking about in terms of public policy when it comes to fighting crime that we're not? I mean, what's not out there in the conversation that needs more attention that's getting overlooked? So I go back to what I said before about this deficit language. Even in like white liberal talk, it's, oh, these poor communities, you know, we've treated them so badly. What I think is left out of a lot of these conversations is the strength of the communities that are violent and do experience high levels of crime. It's both and. And I think there are incredible people, community organizations that are working in these communities and doing fantastic work, it then becomes a question to me, do we have the political will to treat people, to treat communities from a holistic perspective of let's work together. And rather than looking at crime and high crime communities as a problem to be fixed, they're also a means to the same problem solving at the policy level that address the problems we're trying to address. Our brain always thinks of these areas as the problem. But I think if we can, from a political level, treat these communities as a solution as well and build partnerships outside of just sending money to communities, it's also building up these partnerships with community organizations and community people who do know the solutions. As for how crime will affect the results of the midterms, Devaney has questions. Do we have the political will for reimagining? Do we have the political will to treat these communities holistically as a solution as well? I'm Doug Sovereign, and thanks for listening to this episode of our new podcast, The Home Stretch. Every Thursday from now until the midterm elections in November, we'll drop a new episode focused on the most watched issues of this election cycle. Our first four episodes have focused on specific policy issues. Please leave us a rating and a review and subscribe so the next episode is waiting for you as soon as it's released. This episode was produced by Lauren Barry and Cooper Mall. Writing by Chris Blake. Sound design by Zach Clark. Odyssey's managing producer for national news podcasts is Myron Kaplan.